Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wellness Wednesday podcast from the Rolf Pancreatic Cancer Foundation. Each of our episodes are recorded from our live events, so if you hear references to slides or visual resources, you could find links to them in the show notes. You can also find the full episodes on our Wellness Wednesday page at rolffoundation.org or watch on Rolf's YouTube channel. We hope that you find today's conversation to be informative, inspiring, and educational. And above all, we hope you feel connected to our community. We are in this fight together. You are not alone. Hello, and welcome back to Wellness Wednesday, a monthly series where experts share practical tips and techniques on topics that are important to patients, survivors, and caretakers alike. I'm Erin Kuhn Krieger with the Ralph Pancreatic Cancer Foundation, and I'll be co-moderating tonight's session with Savina Chachava and our partners over at Cancer Wellness Center. Tonight, we're talking with Dr. Matthew Dixon, a liver and pancreas surgeon and assistant professor at Rush University Medical Center about the disparity rates and the latest advancements in pancreatic cancer surgical practices. For our friends joining us from Cancer Wellness Center, welcome. And I wanted to share a little bit about Ralph Pancreatic Cancer Foundation. We're a local Chicago organization with connections to some of the leading pancreatic cancer hospitals and organizations in the Midwest and beyond. Ralph provides personal and, ta- personal and tailored support to patients, survivors, and their families in crisis by connecting individuals with the medical experts personalized resources and education. We create awareness about risks and symptoms, and we fund early detection research. Our hands-on approach, or as we like to call it, boots on the ground, ensures that no one has to face this alone. So what does that look like? We personally and directly connect the patients and the families with the medical experts and special re- specialized resources that are tailored to their specific needs. Ralph funds research because we know that um, the best chance of saving lives is through early detection. And we provide ongoing education and support like our talk tonight to empower patients and their families to make quick decisions with confidence. You can learn more at ralphfoundation.org and connect with us through our social channels as well. We'll put links in the chat for more information and easy access. Before I hand things over to Savina, I wanted to acknowledge that today is the last day of Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. It's been an exciting month filled with insights and events and a time where we celebrated all pancreatic cancer warriors and their families and shared stories about and honored all of our friends in the community who have gone uh, too soon. In reality, it's what Ralph does every day. The added exposure and awareness goes a long way to sharing our mission and uh, working toward our vision, which is to live in a world without pancreatic cancer. Earlier this month, our community gathered for the first time in three years for Friday Night Lights of Hope. It was an incredible celebration that raised over $215,000. How incredible is that? And as we head into the end of the year, we're going to be kicking off our annual Matching for a Cure campaign, where your gift can help us unlock a $25,000 match to honor the life and the legacy of Michael Goldberg. Keep an eye on our social channels for that kickoff, and remember, every dollar counts. We'll be sharing more details about our 2023 plans in the coming weeks, but in the meantime, I'm so excited to share that Ralph Foundation has been selected as the recipient of the Highland Park Charity Drive. It's a student-driven event where the students and teachers and staff all vote on a local organization that's making a positive impact in the community. And last year, this charity drive raised more than $96,000 for the recipient, So you can imagine we're thrilled about what the impact of this and these dollars will be on pancreatic research and the support that Ralph provides for patients and and families. So it's a local reward, but everyone can participate. 
Funds are gonna be raised throughout the month of January and we'll be sharing more details about that as we get closer. But as the kids like to say, new merch has dropped. So we'll be sharing a link um, in the chat right now and you could check out all of the cool um, merch uh, just in time for the holidays. Now, I'd like to welcome my partner tonight, Savina Chachava from Cancer Wellness Center. Welcome, Savina. Thank you for the warm welcome, Erin. As always, it's a pleasure partnering with you and the Rolf Pancreatic Cancer Foundation. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight. Um, for those of you new to the Cancer Wellness Center, I would like to take a minute to tell you more about the Cancer Wellness Center and the services that we offer. The Cancer Wellness Center was founded in 1989 as a nonprofit organization with the mission to improve the physical and emotional well-being of those impacted by cancer and their families. Our services, which are both virtual and in-person at Northbrook, include educational programs like the one this evening that aim to help you navigate the varied challenges that come with living with a cancer diagnosis. Wellness classes like yoga, meditation, stress reduction, and more that provide a holistic approach to healthy living and support services, including counseling for individuals, families, couples, uh, children, and those bereaved, as well as support groups that are designed to help participants manage the mental and emotional impact of cancer. If you would like to learn more about the center and connect to our free programs and services, please visit cancerwellness.org and the link will be included in the chat. Thank you. Thank you, Sabina, and thank you and the entire Cancer Wellness team um, for the incredible, incredible work that you do day in and day out. So a few housekeeping items before we um, get started with Dr. Dixon. You can ask questions at any time throughout the session tonight. Uh, you could do it in the comment section below in the chat. You can email us uh, at info at rawfoundation.org. Um, and we'll be sure to get all of those questions together and, and answer those at the end of the session. So tonight we are grateful to have Dr. Matthew Dixon. He's a pancreatic and liver um, surgeon and a professor at Rush University Medical Center. He has a passion and an interest in the clinical treatment of patients with cancer of the liver, benign liver tumors, bile duct cancer, pancreatic cancer, pancreatic cysts, neuroendocrine tumors and other types of rare pancreatic cancer or pancreatic tumors. And we're so happy to have him join us tonight. Welcome, Dr. Dixon. Great. Thanks very much, uh, Aaron, and uh, for that warm welcome. And thanks uh, to, to the Rolf uh, Foundation. And uh, thank you, Savina, and the Cancer Wellness Center just for, for having me. Very excited to be here. And um, I'll go ahead and, uh, and share my slides. Okay, so um, hopefully everybody can can see uh, see my slides there. So, uh, so the title of my talk tonight, I uh, just want to spend some time talking about uh, obviously a, a topic that I have uh, a lot of interest in, and that's uh, disparities in access to care for uh, for pancreatic cancer. Okay, I have uh, have no disclosures to share with you. Um, so as a, a bit of an outline uh, for, for the talk this evening, uh, I'm going to spend um, a lot of time just going over, uh, giving you an overview uh, of, uh, of the care of pancreas cancer and sort of where we stand in, uh, in the United States today. And want to spend some time when we get getting in the bulk of the talk, I'm going to spend talking about a lot about the disparities um, uh, in, in and the inequity in access to care, uh, uh, and that being from from the standpoint of uh, uh, differences in epidemiology, um, 
spend a little bit of time talking about some differences in biology uh, under utilization of multimodality treatment, which I hope to show you is really important in the treatment of pancreas cancer. Um, underrepresentation in clinical trials and some factors that are contributing to underutilization and uh, trying to operationalize change, which I think is a very complex multifactorial uh, uh, topic, which uh, uh, would, would really look forward to, to hearing from you all in terms of your thoughts about how, uh, how we can do that. So, you know, to start off, um, you know, self-reported uh, uh, race does correlate with, uh, with socioeconomic status and uh, in turn, Low socioeconomic status uh, can be associated with uh, with poor access to uh, to high quality care, uh, as well as lower screening rates uh, and delays in treatment uh, after diagnosis uh, and um, and low treatment adherence. And cancer health disparities between uh, 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 racial minorities and uh, non-Hispanic whites can uh, in part be explained by some of these associations. Um, Furthermore, financial distress that can be associated with cancer management can prevent adequate care uh, and start and starting and this can start prior to diagnosis and it can, can occur during imaging or even just through the whole pathologic confirmation. Um, and whereas effective advances in multidisciplinary cancer care uh, have contributed to improved survival rates, uh, the cost of these treatments uh, and the concomitant impact of some of those treatments on uh, employment, disability does disproportionately uh, burden those patients who are socioeconomically disadvantaged, um, many of whom uh, are Black patients and Hispanic uh, uh, patients. So um, we'll just kind of dive in and, and talk uh, uh, briefly about pancreas cancer. And this obviously being Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, I may be sharing uh, some things that you may have, have heard of already. But um, you know, this, uh, <laughs> this slide comes from uh, data that, that's published every year by, uh, by the Center for Disease Control. And as you can see, for both men and women, um, pancreas cancer isn't really even in the top five in terms of uh, new cancer cases. We are seeing certainly a rise in the incidence of, uh, of pancreas cancer, but it's, it falls well below things like lung and colon, uh, um, uh, melanoma, et cetera. Um, but what's important here is that uh, when it comes to talking about cancer-related deaths, uh, pancreatic cancer is is up. You know, it really kind of punches above its weight in terms of incidence from what it what it causes and then the the rate of uh, uh, cancer-related deaths that it causes. And and as you can see, for for both men and women, it is certainly within the top five. Um, this table is uh, just drawn from a summary article from the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, in terms of risk factors for, for pancreas cancer, as you can imagine, smoking uh, is a significant uh, contributor, longstanding diabetes, some non-hereditary chronic pancreatitis, um, obesity and inactivity uh, can be a risk factor. And interestingly, uh, patients who do not have type O uh, blood can also be uh, at risk. There's also several genetic syndromes. I won't spend a lot of time going into talking about those. One that I'll highlight is uh, um, hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome. So the inherited uh, breast cancer genes, BRCA and BRCA2, uh, uh, can be associated with increased risk of, uh, of pancreas cancer. Um, so this slide I borrowed from one of my uh, former colleagues uh, and really shows just how um, uh, significant a problem this is, is becoming and just the fact that, that by 2030 in the United States, pancreatic, pancreatic cancer will become the second most deadly um, cancer. So uh, this is uh, uh, from an old news release. So it's about six years ago from, uh, from CNN. Um, but uh, um, it has already surpassed breast cancer to become the third leading uh, cancer killer in the U.S. 
uh, with for both men and women more than 41,000 deaths. I mean, I think that's that that's in part because you know breast cancer obviously disproportionately affects women, as you can imagine. Uh, male breast cancer is very very rare, um, but it's also because we have you know much better treatments for for breast cancer than we do for uh, for, for pancreas cancer. Uh, and so some of the challenges uh, with treating pancreas cancer, and Aaron shared this at the beginning of the talk, but one of the big problems is there is a real lack of any established screening tools. So, um, you know, for, for breast cancer, where we have uh, screening mammograms for colon cancer, we'll have um, screening colonoscopies. Those have really helped to reduce uh, or at least diagnose those cancers earlier and help reduce um, uh, uh, cancer-related mortality from those illnesses. But uh, uh, pancreatic cancer, unlike those, we really don't have a, uh, an established uh, screening tool that helps us to detect these, these cancers early. And uh, that, of course, leads to a late appearance of symptoms. And, and, and I, always, I always tell patients that when, uh, when cancers are big enough to cause symptoms, that's usually, that's not a good sign because it means those cancers are, uh, can, be, can be, be a large size and, and unfortunately oftentimes means that it's too large for us to be able to uh, uh, you know, potentially do surgery. Um, and of course, with, with pancreas cancer, as, as we all know, this is a really aggressive cancer. Uh, there's a rapid uh, growth uh, of these tumors and it likes to grow and spread um, you know, uh, pretty fairly early. And so uh, you know, we really try to think of, of pancreas cancer as, uh, as a systemic disease uh, really from the outset. So uh, this slide uh, just comes from a summary. And, and you know, as a surgeon, I tend to try to, when I'm seeing a patient with pancreatic cancer, I tend to um, place them in one of these three categories. Um, the first one is patients who are resectable, uh, meaning their tumors are, are far away from any of the, uh, the blood vessels that, uh, uh, that are important. So the, uh, the superior mesenteric artery, the superior mesenteric vein that you see in the, in the diagram there, um, uh, those are, are really important to know the relationship of these tumors to those, those blood vessels. And so when somebody has a resectable tumor, it means it's early stage enough that it's uh, far away from those vessels. <clears throat> patients who are, and that represents, by the way, about 20% of patients. And for patients who are borderline resectable or locally advanced uh, or unresectable, that represents about 30% of patients. Um, and then unfortunately, at least half of patients uh, with pancreatic cancer will have metastatic disease or stage four disease uh, really from the outset. Uh, and so in terms of treatment suite sequence, especially with talking about these, this first two group of, of patients who uh, I'm certainly more likely to, to see in the clinic, um, wanted to spend some time really just talking about that treatment sequencing. And so really regardless of, of, of surgical resectability nowadays, uh, um, we put pretty much everybody on, uh, on chemotherapy first for that reason that I said, just because pancreas cancer is such an aggressive cancer, it likes to grow and spread early. And by starting with a, a treatment that goes all over the body and that being chemotherapy, we, we um, uh, uh, start virtually everybody nowadays on, uh, on chemotherapy. Um, certainly at our center and any high volume center uh, uh, like, like Rush, uh, all these patients are reviewed at a multidisciplinary case conference that's attended by uh, uh, surgeons, gastroenterologists, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists. And we all decide as a group what the best uh, uh, sequence of treatment will be. And, and invariably that does involve chemotherapy first. Sometimes it'll involve radiation. 
and then assessing the treatment response uh, uh, with the goal of trying to uh, to get those patients to uh, to surgery to take out their tumors. Um, and that's often followed with chemotherapy again uh, afterwards. Excuse me. So in terms of the surgical treatment, um, um, you know, that really kind of comes in one of two flavors for, uh, for pancreas cancer. The first one on uh, the, the uh, left-hand side of the screen is called uh, a Whipple procedure. And this is what we, the procedure that we'll do for patients who have tumors that are located in the head of the pancreas, uh, the area called the uncinate process uh, or the proximal neck uh, uh, of the pancreas. And, and that involves removing um, uh, part of the pancreas and involves removing the first part of the small intestine called the duodenum as well as the gallbladder and, uh, uh, and part of the bile duct. And then uh, there is a reconstruction that we have to perform after getting um, the, uh, the cancer and the whole specimen out where we'll attach the small intestine to the pancreas uh, and then an attachment to the bile duct. And then lastly, an attachment uh, to uh, between the stomach and the intestine. And then in the figure on the right, uh, uh, for, for cancers that are located in the body and the tail of the pancreas, uh, the surgery that we'll typically do for that is called a distal pancreatectomy, and then we'll have to remove the spleen with these cases uh, uh, as well. So in terms of just sort of highlighting, I guess, what's new um, with surgical treatment, I mean, these surgical procedures have been around for, uh, for a while. Uh, I think the things that are, are new, uh, the two things that I'll mention that are fairly new with, with treating these diseases are, number one, um, uh, minimally invasive surgery. So, uh, uh, you know, certainly in the stand, in for, uh, relating to distal pancreatectomy and splenectomies, um, and we're pretty much, necessarily at our center, we're doing uh, uh, almost all of those cases uh, either robotically uh, or laparoscopically. Um, that's pretty routine for us nowadays. And, and at least 80% of those cases, we're able to complete those surgeries uh, minimally invasively. Um, the uptake for, for minimally invasive Whipple procedures has been uh, a bit slower. Um, you know, I, I have performed robotic Whipple procedures before, um, but uh, uh, um, I think that, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit more comfortable personally doing them, uh, doing them open. And I, and I am, you know, I, I tend to use robotics as, as a tool and not something that uh, I try to do on everybody. And so it really does have to be kind of the right patient, right tumor uh, to, uh, to, to utilize um, uh, the robot to do Whipple procedures. And then the other thing I guess I'll mention that's sort of new with surgery is enhanced recovery pathways uh, after surgery for, uh, for all these patients, regardless of what type of um, surgery they're undergoing with the goal really of trying to, to do the surgery you know, well with as few complications as possible and getting patients out of the hospital and then back to their um, baseline health so they can, um, they'll be able to get back on, uh, on chemotherapy because it really is that multimodality treatment that is, that is really important. So, you know, our goal with the Whipple procedure is trying to get patients out of the hospital between about day five and day seven. Um, about 70 to 75% of patients were able to leave the hospital in that time frame. And then certainly with the uh, distal pancreatectomies, with us being able to do those minimally invasively, most patients will leave the hospital between day three and day five after surgery. So um, talking a little bit about surgery, and this is, is, is older data, but uh, there is a certain nihilism which comes to, uh, 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 to even offering surgery. And as you can see from, from the, the curve uh, on the right hand of the screen there, um, this is a, a survival curve that really highlights the fact that patients who even, you know, who have early stage pancreas cancer, as long as they can undergo surgery, you know, they certainly have much improved uh, survival over people who uh, even the same stage 
uh, stage one disease, if they're not offered surgery, uh, you know, obviously surgery can help these patients uh, uh, live longer. So it's really important to try to offer that when possible. Um, and just highlighting here, you know, this was an updated uh, study that was done 11 years later and shows we haven't really made a whole lot of progress. There's still a lot of patients who, uh, even with early stage pancreas cancer, are, are not, uh, are, are experiencing um, um, detrimental survival compared to those who, who are undergoing surgery. So, um, so to kind of move into sort of, I guess, the next phase of, of the talk and really wanted to spend some time talking about the undertreatment of, of pancreas cancer. So, um, you know, one of my uh, residents at my prior institution, Maddie Torres, and I and my former uh, partner, Neeraj Gusani, we wrote a review paper that really kind of serves as the model for what I want to talk about for, for, for the remainder of, uh, of the slides this evening. Um, and looking at these four areas where we're really, uh, there's a real undertreatment of pancreas cancer. So to start out with, just talking about the uh, epidemiology of this disease. So you know, the, real, the reality here is that um, black patients have uh, the highest incidence of pancreatic cancer uh, compared to other racial ethnic groups. So that's, that's just a fact. And, you know, compared to non-Hispanic white patients, uh, Hispanic patients, American Indians and Asian Pacific uh, patients, um, uh, as you can see, just in, in bold there, uh, black patients do have the highest, uh, highest incidence of this disease. And the explanation for this disparity uh, um, in incidence is unknown. Uh, it's likely multifactorial, and it appears to be related to, uh, to really a variety of factors that it could include differential rates of smoking, uh, exposure to chemicals, um, uh, alcohol use, diabetes, poverty, uh, obesity, and then really a lot of the other uh, subsequent, um, you know, social determinants of health that can go along um, um, with, uh, 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 with that. And then, of course, as you can imagine, uh, uh, following uh, with, with incidents, Black patients also experience at the highest reported death rates uh, uh, from pancreatic cancer with 13.3 uh, deaths per 100,000 uh, um, uh, 100,000 people. Um, so with a more kind of granular examination, it does become clear that other racial and ethnic groups also experience mortality rate and disparities with, with pancreatic cancer. Um, um, uh, in addition to, 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 to black patients. And so that being, um, non, uh, uh, so that, that being native American patients in particular who, uh, uh, and those patients tend to die at a higher rate within the first month after diagnosis compared to white patients as an example. So, um, and then notably, however, uh, and also likely, uh, contributing to differential mortality is that, uh, black patients do present more frequently with local regional and metastatic disease. Uh, leading to lower rates of surgical resection. As you can imagine, there's a lot of uh, potential uh, factors associated with that, like even just access to primary care physicians or, or, or having um, um, you know, any nonspecific symptoms that they may be having paid attention to by, uh, by their physicians. So the next one, which I briefly want to talk about is uh, differences in biology. Um, this is kind of a boring slide, but <laughs> I'm just sort of talking about some of the, the different genes. But um, you know, racial differences in gene expression uh, and some tumor inflammatory response uh, and then behavior in the tumor microenvironment has been shown to be uh, different uh, between races and other cancers. Uh, although their significance in contributing to disparities in pancreatic cancer is unclear, uh, it is important to mention, I think, at least their, their existence. Um, 
The first one there, KRAS, uh, this is, is mutated in over 90% of all pancreatic cancers. So, it, you know, so pancreatic cancer is a very KRAS-driven uh, type of, of tumor. Uh, one particular mutation of this, uh, of this gene, uh, the G12V1, which I've mentioned there, uh, we tend to see a higher rate of that in black patients compared to white patients. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's unknown whether or not that does lead to more aggressive disease and worse survival. Um, the second one that I've mentioned there, the uh, somatostatin subtype receptor, SSTR5. Um, this has also been associated with regulation in pancreatic cancer tumor genesis or otherwise, uh, uh, um, you know, starting to form a pancreatic cancer. Uh, there's three specific, specific uh, genotypes that have been identified. The one that I've listed there, this TC genotype um, is associated with increased tumor aggression and higher uh, risk of mortality. And uh, that uh, uh, there is some evidence that shows that that may be uh, more frequently seen in black patients compared to white patients. Um, the next one, this molecule called queso, which is a what's called a bimodal transcription factor, uh, helps to facilitate um, uh, tumor genesis uh, 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 you know, through the suppression uh, of, of different genes, and it does uh, seem to have elevated expression in black patients with pancreas cancer, uh, although it's unknown whether or not that does, um, you know, lead to, to more aggressive tumors. And then lastly, this last um, protein, KDM4, um, does also has increased expression in black, in black patients with pancreatic cancer, but again, um, not known if the, the potential mechanism here is not really known whether or not um, uh, it, uh, uh, is contributing to worse outcomes in, in, in pancreas cancer. Um, so regardless of all of these, um, you know, differences in biology between races, uh, you know, I think it's, it's really, really important, uh, you know, to, to really say that, you know, any of these previously mentioned transcription factors, receptors, mutations, et cetera, while it might be associated with an increased risk of developing pancreatic cancer, uh, and therefore maybe explain why we see differences in, uh, incidents, um, they, uh, 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 sorry, I just got interrupted there. Uh, um, you know, while it may explain why there's an increase in incidence, it shouldn't, it, there really isn't any explanation for why there's an increase in, uh, um, death from pancreatic cancer. And so it's really, uh, can't really be seen as, as solely responsible for the disparity in, uh, uh, in outcomes for these patients. So next, I uh, just want to talk about underutilization of, uh, of multimodality care. Um, so, you know, despite strong evidence um, supporting multimodality treatment, uh, uh, many Black patients are not actually offered consultation and don't receive um, multimodality care. And uh, um, Black patients tend to experience lower rates of <laughs> consultations with specialists, uh, uh, including consultation with a medical oncologist, uh, a radiation oncologist, and a surgical oncologist. Uh, and these patients are also less likely to undergo chemotherapy, and they're 25% they're less likely to receive uh, chemotherapy uh, after, after surgery. And there's also disparities in the receipt of surgery. So, uh, you know, for our review, we looked at uh, multiple studies that focused on evaluation and receipt of surgery based on race. And the majority of these studies all suggested that uh, there is decreased offerings of or in receipt of surgery uh, for, for Black patients. And that this, I think, is a really significant contributor to the overall uh, low survival rates that we see. So, 
Um, 29% of, of black patients with potentially resectable disease do not even receive surgical evaluation and they're less likely than therefore to undergo surgical resection, especially for not being seen by surgeons. And so, and then when compared to white patients, uh, black patients were also offered less surgery uh, at a lower rate compared to, uh, to, to white patients. Um, and so, uh, uh, and so this, this has uh, obviously translated into to black patients undergoing fewer surgical resections. Um, and some of the factors that are associated with that um, uh, include, and this is in particular from, from one study, so patients who are older uh, have higher comorbidities or like a higher number of, of additional medical problems, non-English speaking, black race, low income, less education and non-private insurance were all contributing factors that led to a decreased likelihood of, uh, of undergoing surgery. And so, uh, you know, what that's translated to is that there are about a 38.2% uh, of patients with resectable pancreatic cancer uh, are not undergoing surgery. This is for, for, for black patients, while 51.7% um, of patients with stage one disease uh, do not even undergo surgery uh, uh, just for a variety of factors as you know, listed there. And again, you know, non-white patients are less likely to, uh, to, to undergo resection. Um, and that's about, in, in particular with black patients, they're about 24% uh, uh, less likely compared to, uh, to white patients. Um, you know, some of the factors that are contributing to this, uh, um, you know, one um, is, uh, is, is insurance status. So um, there are, uh, uh, you know, and this, this for me actually, so a little background about me, I'm actually from, from Canada and I grew up with a, a public healthcare system. And so, you know, when I moved to the US, I think I was pretty naive uh, uh, about how much of a problem this is. And it was a little difficult for me to wrap my head around, to be honest, but uh, you know, the truth is, you know, for patients with, with private insurance, um, these patients experienced increased receipt of, uh, of perioperative therapy compared to those patients who have uh, Medicaid, Medicare, or they're underinsured or they're uninsured. Uh, one study in uh, the state of Florida found that, um, you know, the, the, the average survival for patients with pancreatic cancer um, was basically inversely proportional to their poverty level. So the poorer you were, the worse that you did. Uh, um, and uh, uh, it was it was inversely associated, pardon me, with uh, uh, with with private insurance. So, in other words, if you had private insurance, private insurance, then you you live longer uh, because more of these patients ended up getting multimodality therapy, whereas obviously the poorer patients didn't have access to that multimodality therapy, and so their their survival rates really suffered. Um, so, how about when we level the playing field? Then what happens? Um, there was a study that looked at that as well. And um, you know the effect of health insurance expansion uh, in the state of Massachusetts back in 2006 uh, found that there was uh, increased resection rates of pancreatic cancer compared to states that didn't uh, expand access to health insurance. However, even when we control for, for bad insurance or no insurance, black patients are still receiving less surgery. <clears throat> They're receiving surgery at lower rates. Um, compared to, uh, to non-white patients, suggesting that lack of insurance is not solely the reason that's contributing to, uh, to these uh, decreased uh, resection rates. And also in unresectable disease, so patients who either uh, their tumors are too advanced or they have metastatic disease, even those patients with private insurance were more likely to receive chemotherapy compared to patients with, uh, uh, without insurance. 
There's also uh, uh, maybe an implicit bias. That's uh, that's also at, at play here. I mentioned some of the nihilism that surrounds pancreatic cancer earlier in the talk, um, uh, but there's also uh, potentially an implicit bias that's at play here um, uh, as well. And there was one study that we looked at that found that uh, black patients received less cancer information, uh, including names and referrals to cancer specialists that specialize specifically in pancreas cancer. Um, and, uh, and furthermore, some of those physicians can be less patient-centered, uh, provide poor quality information uh, and uh, different advice when it comes to, uh, to meeting black patients. Um, and uh, you know, for patients with comparable uh, disease stage, surgeons were also less likely to recommend surgery for, for, for black patients. And you know, that kind of ties in with some of the data that I, I showed before. Um, <clears throat> and then um, patient refusal. Um, so there can be a lot of misconceptions about cancer surgery uh, that could drive patient refusal to want to even undergo surgery. Um, some of those beliefs can be mitigated by trying to practice uh, culturally competent and patient-centered care uh, to try to explore and address some of the concerns uh, that patients have and the anxieties, which there's obviously always a lot when it surrounds pancreas cancer. Um, you know, one statistic that I found really disturbing is that uh, uh, black patients are three times more likely than white patients to, to refuse surgery. Uh, and there are several studies that, that we looked at that found that, uh, that black patients were more likely to, to refuse it despite equal recommendations for, uh, for surgical resection. Uh, refusal for surgery excuse me, is associated with uh, with older age, um, evaluation at uh, a non-academic program, so a non-university hospital, uh, patients who have higher comorbidities and, and should serve as no surprise, patients who have non-private insurance as well. Um, and, and as you can imagine with this disease, refusal for surgery has also been associated with refusal of, of other therapies like chemotherapy and radiation. Um, you know, refusal for, for surgery um, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it may just be because of concerns of the, the surgical risk, uh, some of the diagnostic uncertainties, but I think, you know, a big, a big one is historical distrust, uh, in the healthcare system, which is why I kind of wanted to, you know, devote, devote even one slide to this. And so, um, you know, I, I think this can be kind of a, a tricky issue to talk about because to simply state that, you know, patient mistrust contributes to, to disparities in receipt of treatment uh, among black patients really kind of ignores uh, the years of mistreatment, abuse, and structural racism that's really heavily embedded in the history of medicine in this country. And, um, you know, assertions that, assertions that, uh, that uh, patient mistrust is what drives disparities uh, will obscure, you know, the etiologies of, of racial health inequities and blames uh, patients for their disproportionate suffering. Um, this is particularly, you know, very much true for, for, for black patients and any mistrust that um, those patients harbor toward the US healthcare system is a result of their really never ending mistreatment and not the cause of it. And I think suggesting that, you know, trust and not structural racism is the primary barrier between black patients and equitable care and positive healthcare outcomes is just simply not true. Um, and, you know, really at the end of the day, I think, you know, if black patients harbor mistrust uh, towards the US healthcare system, which is a system that's really afforded them inequitable access for virtually every conceivable type of, of care, 
it really exposes their valid assessment of our healthcare system and uh, and its performance and or underperformance in um, you know adequately serving them, and it's not the root cause of their uh, their poor outcomes. And so, shifting the blame to patient refusal of care uh, due to mistrust, I think is is and and focusing, pardon me, and focusing and not focusing on addressing the structural racism uh, that we see uh, causing health inequities uh, only really perpetuates this problem and uh, uh, um, can be really quite dangerous. So next, um, uh, you know, talking about other factors contributing to underutilization. So underutilization of high volume centers. So one of the things that I should have mentioned earlier in the talk when I was talking about surgery is, um, you know, it's really important to, to get, you know, to try to seek out care in your surgery at a, at a high volume center. Uh, that, what I mean by that are, are hospitals that perform these surgeries a lot. Um, you know, whenever I, I meet patients uh, and talking to them about treating their pancreas cancer, I'm always, you know, try to try to be clear in saying that, you know, you know, for somebody like me who specializes in do, doing pancreatic cancer surgery, that doesn't mean I'm a better surgeon than, than, than surgeons at a, at a community hospital. It just means that I'm specifically trained to do these procedures and we do them a lot. And that's not just me, that's the, um, all the other doctors that help us take care of these patients, uh, like our gastroenterologists, our interventional radiologists, our ICU, medical oncology, radiation oncology, et cetera. So um, you know, when you're at a center that treats this a lot, your outcomes are going to be better. Um, and, and so it should probably serve as no surprise that there's been a lot of studies that have shown um, that, uh, 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 you know, regionalization of care or care at high volume centers, um, you know, while it does show that there's improved outcomes for, for surgery, as well as receipt of multimodality therapy, um, but it also means that there are uh, that patients who, you know, non-white patients, in particular black patients, are more likely to undergo surgery. <clears throat> Uh, uh, undergo surgery at uh, high volume centers are more likely to undergo surgery at low volume centers. Uh, and there is an unequal uh, uh, referral rate of, of, of black and non-white patients to, uh, to, to high volume centers. And so, you know, one study uh, showed that, uh, that black patients were less likely to, uh, as I mentioned, they're likely, less likely to receive care uh, at a high volume center. And they're also less likely to receive surgery by a high volume surgeon. Uh, and they're more likely to, to receive their care at, uh, at low volume hospitals by low volume surgeons uh, that then you know, serves to further increase the disparity gap in outcomes and survival. Um, and then uh, another study uh, looked at, saw that black patients were less likely to, uh, to re receive care uh, at high volume centers, as I mentioned previously. And so similarly, uninsured patients and those residing in zip codes with a lower population level uh, uh, educational attainment were also less likely to be sent to uh, to high volume centers. So, um, you know, so access to care at high volume centers is really inequitable. Uh, it's something that I would love to see change. And I would be very much open to feedback to, to how people think that we could, we could do that. And obviously I think, it, you know, we'll have to go uh, be sensitive to, to things like insurance status, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, and ensuring equitable access does require addressing some of the non-medical social determinants of, of health as well, uh, such as inequities of, of uh, uh, in education, labor, housing markets, uh, et cetera. So you really kind of see how uh, disparities in healthcare outcomes really go beyond just the care itself. It really depends on, on, on what goes on outside the hospital as well. 
And so lastly, just briefly, uh, I'll talk about underrepresentation in clinical trials. Um, you know, a pretty low number of patients who uh, are, are seen in cancer in, in cancer centers are an even, an, even enrolled in, in clinical trials. Only about two to 4% of patients are actually participate. And there is an underrepresentation of, my, uh, of, of minorities in these trials. And they only comprise about 15% of patients that are enrolled in clinical trials. Um, and that's a really significant underrepresentation. There's a real significant underrepresentation, in particular from Black patients and Hispanic patients, uh, in addition to, uh, to, to elderly patients. Um, patients who are more likely to participate in trials uh, are patients who are, uh, who are white, who have stage four disease, private insurance, and fewer comorbidities. Um, and patients who live, uh, somewhat ironically, uh, patients who actually live farther away from, uh, uh, from, from hospitals are more likely to, uh, to, to participate. Um, you know, so in summary, um, you know, the incidence, uh, presentation, biology, treatment uh, opportunities and outcomes for pancreatic cancer vary tremendously uh, across the spectrum for patients. Uh, and then race, gender, ethnicity, geography, socioeconomic, socioeconomic factors can affect uh, each of these and inequities related to any of these factors can then lead to late presentation, undertreatment, and poor outcomes. Um, the deadly disease like pancreas cancer, um, these inequities are really amplified and lead to significantly worse outcomes uh, in our most vulnerable populations. And awareness of these trends and factors uh, uh, that can help provide the first step toward correcting these disparities and ultimately providing just, culturally competent, and equitable care to all, pa you know, all patients with pancreatic cancer. That's really, that's really the goal. And so. You know, question is, where do we go from here to try to, uh, to reduce health inequities uh, for, for pancreas cancer? And so, you know, uh, one, you know, kind of thought about operationalizing change. Um, you know, I, I know this is a, 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 you know, I think this is um, um, uh, like an important issue and just in, in trying to highlight, you know, inequitable access to care uh, for this, for, you know, the, for the medical system broadly. And, um, you know, this is actually uh, um, some of the data for, from this slide comes from uh, Dr. David Ansel, who uh, is obviously here here at Rush and um, uh, has been a giant in looking at um, uh, uh, structural racism and the effects on uh, on um, uh, disparate outcomes. And, and so, you know, in one uh, article, he highlighted uh, three potential um, strategies uh, to try to address uh, structural racism in healthcare, uh, which is, I think, is broadly applicable uh, for all forms of medical access to care. And I think, you know, we can particularly use these for, for pancreas cancer. So number one, you know, clinicians uh, can make the invisible visible. And what that means is that, uh, uh, that we uh, need to utilize data to, to know how uh, outcomes at our institutions differ based on race, uh, ethnic background, gender, insurance status, neighborhood, education level, uh, socioeconomic status, et cetera. And measuring quality outcomes, you know, according to these factors will illuminate opportunities to try to mitigate inequities uh, in care delivery um, that, that might result in outcome differences for, uh, for patients. Um, and then when differences in outcomes are found, then uh, we as clinicians uh, can seek and understand the social and structural factors that are at play there. Um, number two, uh, healthcare organizations can engage the community uh, in an effort to change the accepted uh, explanatory, explanatory narrative. Um, you know, rather than attributing or, or even blaming patients for their own poor outcomes or biology or behavioral inevitability, et cetera, uh, you know, we need to reframe them as symptoms of a pathological social system that could be improved. 
Uh, and then lastly, inst institutions can make systemic changes to, uh, to help eliminate inequitable access to care. And whether we're talking about structural racism or any other factors that, that produce inequitable access to care. And, you know, one, I guess, last plug is, is um, uh, uh, you know, here at, at Rush, one of the things that really drew me to, uh, to want to practice here is that, um, you know, the institution, I think, has recognized well the injustice of health disparities and how rampant and equitable, you know, access to adequate care is um, in Chicago. And so our healthcare system um, became one of the first academic healthcare systems to uh, make health equity uh, a strategic priority. Uh, and, uh, you know, we really kind of shown that with a constant, you know, a, a concentrated investment on health and equ health equity um, by establishing an Institute of Health Equity, and this is obviously done uh, in conjunction with the uh, the uh, with BMO, uh, with with help to form that uh, uh, to form um, that uh, that institute, and uh, you know look forward to trying to partner with people like Dr. Ansel, who I mentioned, um, with trying to uh, to reduce things like the you know the the health uh, inequities uh, to to access to care, in particular for pancreas cancer, like like we've been talking about. So. Um, so that's all I had. Uh, really, thank you everybody for for joining us us this evening, and thanks for paying attention to uh, to my talk. And um, would really love to uh, uh, to hear any questions that uh, that anybody might have. Well, thank you for for sharing this and and all of the work that you're doing in in this arena. It's it's so necessary. This is. Um, so I, I can't decide if it's more maddening or depressing or or what. Um, so you know, I, I truly appreciate all of the the thought and efforts going within it. And um, everybody who is participating has a lot of questions. So I'm going to jump right in. Um, if you do have additional questions, you can continue to send them in the chat, put them in the comments, um, or email them to us at info at ralphfoundation.org. So the first one is. Um, talking about the rise of occurrence of pancreatic cancer, what are you attributing that rise to? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think that um, I, I like, like anything else, it's, it's, it's complicated and I think it's multifactorial. Um, you know, I did list that one slide that talked about things like smoking, um, longstanding diabetes, obesity uh, being potential causes. Uh, uh, of seeing that increased rise. Um, I, I think it, it also could be that, uh, that people are, you know, living a little bit longer uh, and we're also doing uh, a lot more, you know, things like, you know, um, what we call cross-sectional imaging or, you know, getting things like a CT scan for other reasons that may actually help us get lucky and try to find these tumors uh, at an earlier stage. So, um, you know, so so it, it's not an it's not an there's no one kind of real easy answer to sort of pinpoint as to what you know what is responsible for that increased uh, incidence or that rise. Um, the the you know what has sort of been consistent, I think, is that uh, uh, that um, that the the death rate from pancreatic cancer has has been remained pretty steady, and as I think the care for a lot of cancers has gotten better. Um, you know, for, for pancreas cancer, it sort of has, as you know, hasn't improved very much. And I think a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, I think it has improved some with our recognition that this is being aggressive cancer. We need to really use aggressive chemotherapy as well as surgery, but we don't have 
the repertoire of chemotherapies for, for pancreas cancer that we do for something like breast cancer, as an example. So uh, that's kind of where, you know, we need to continue to do more research and try to come up with new therapeutics to try to, to help patients live longer. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to stay on the um, cancer side of things and we'll move into the more to the disparity. So the next question is what can the average person do to advocate for themselves or their loved one if they feel like their doctors aren't doing enough? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a great question. And I think that, you know, and sometimes this can be, um, you know, frustrating if you, if you're going to see, say your primary care doctor, as an example, um, uh, and, you know, pancreas cancer isn't always the first thing that's really going to be on their mind. Um, you know, but I, and I think that, you know, things like getting routine lab tests and trying to check those, oftentimes we can see, uh, some elevations in the liver function tests that can, can signal us to, um, you know, some changes that, that, uh, uh can be associated with pancreas cancer. Um, and, and honestly, if you're not getting anywhere there, seeking out a second opinion, um, um, you know, trying, trying to, to go and see another physician, trying to get in with a, a specialist, um, like a gastroenterologist or somebody like myself. Um, you know, I, I think those are kind of important, uh, important steps because if, you know, uh, oftentimes it's really, you know, the family members, uh, that really can see if something's not right. Um, and, and sometimes it, it just takes being very persistent and trying to, uh, to, to, to come to an answer. So, um, it's another one that there isn't always an easy answer to that. Um, but, uh, uh, I guess, you know, I would just encourage people to, to really, you know, if, if you really think that there's something wrong and, and, you know, with your loved one to, to really continue to try to seek out care, if that means having to go and see another doctor who will, who, who you think will listen to you. Great. Are we seeing an uptick at all in disparity being in disparity going down or is it getting worse or is it kind of staying level? I think it's mostly staying level. Um, you, you know, I, I, I think disparity out like the disparities in outcomes has been sort of a, you know, while it's not a new concept, I think that it's something that we've known about for a while. I think really kind of being scientific about it and analyzing, uh, um, you know, th those outcomes has, has, you know, something, I think it's something that we've been doing, you know, really um, effectively probably over the last decade or so, um, you know, and that's actually kind of my, you know, real academic interest is looking at that, you know, in particular in Chicago to, to look at those disparities in access to care and try to model that over time and by area of the city. And so um, I think as time will go on, especially if we don't really have any, you know, really huge policy shifts or changes, um, you know, a lot of those disparities uh, will probably continue, which for somebody like me is, is beyond frustrating. Um, you know, because, you know, as I mentioned, kind of with my background coming from Canada, I really think that healthcare is a right, not something that should be based on your ability to pay. And, uh, um, you know, I think it, I, I would really lo like love to just see, you know, really equitable access across the board. And I think, um, you know, as I mentioned, I think it's, it's a very difficult multifactorial problem that, uh, um, you know, I would even be open to hearing feedback from, from others who are on the call if they, you know, for any ideas that they think that we need to do to, to try to solve that, because it really will go even beyond the healthcare itself and addressing a lot of the structural racism problems we see in our society today. Absolutely. So are doctors in 
more predominantly black communities well-versed about pancreatic cancer and risks and, and symptoms. And, and I'll couch that in knowing that the disparity goes well beyond pancreatic cancer. Um, is, it, is it more um, that, are they look, not looking for it? And so that's a piece of the puzzle too? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think that, um, you know, in, you know, for, for a lot of, and I think it kind of goes back to my comment about, um, you know, pancreas cancer not always being, you know, with it not being the most common thing, it's not always in you know, the front of, you know, mind. And, and, you know, primary care doctors are, are a lot of times focused on trying to manage a lot of chronic health conditions. And, and um, you know, so, so I think it, it may be, um, I don't know that it's not necessarily that they're well versed, um, but uh, I think, and, and if that's you know particular in any particular area, say in a predominantly black community like you mentioned, but um, you know I, I think that that just system wide, I mean, with a lot of primary care physicians, it's and I can't you can't really blame them because again, it's not the most common cancer, but it's not always the most front of mind for them. So um, you know I think that uh, that it, it really kind of does take I think you know being you know, committed to trying to, you know, get to, to get to any, you know, to any underlying problems. And maybe this comes from, from again, family members being really persistent and trying to, uh, to press uh, their doctors to try to look for other causes of the symptoms that uh, they think they're experiencing, especially like, you know, any, you know, uh, you know, like less dramatic. I mean, cause you can always have, um, you know, patients who will become jaundiced because they've got a tumor that's blocking their bile duct. I think that can be fairly obvious. Um, and when I say jaundice, I mean yellowing of the skin, yellowing of the eyes. Um, but even beyond that, like a lot of nonspecific symptoms, like any weight loss or, or difficulty eating, those sorts of things should really prompt uh, people to know that something is something's wrong. Sure. Um, so two questions based off of that. So I'd imagine from the other side of the insurance piece, you know, doctors have to follow certain edicts from my understanding of you can only be with a patient this long or you have to do this or that. So I'm assuming that as a doctor, you're feeling the pressure too from that side of things. Um, a, a little bit. Um, if, if I'm honest, um, I, I, I really try to give my patients all like you know, I, I try to be very sure that uh, that my patients are really comfortable and all the questions are answered when I see them. Um, and, and as you can imagine, I have to tend to have some fairly heavy conversations. Um, and that for me, I think maybe gives me a bit of the luxury too, that I can have, I can budget a little bit more time for my appointments. Um, because I want to really be sure that, that, you know, patients, when they come to see me, they leave with all their questions answered. That's not always true for you know, a really busy uh, primary care physician that maybe only has 15 minutes. So you're right. There certainly can be that, that, that time pressure that, that may um, um, uh, uh, inhibit their, their, their sense in thinking about uh, uh, any potential uh, problems like pancreas cancer. So um, hopefully that answers that question, but yeah. So I, I think for, for, for me, um, you know, I, I really try to give my patients all that, you know, as much time as possible. And sometimes that means I run late. I mean, sometimes that means I'm going to be 15, 20 minutes, a half hour late with the next patient. And then it's really just because, you know, I want to try to make sure that those patients get, you know, have all their questions answered and they're comfortable with the plan. And, and, and I try to, to spend a lot of time laying out, you know, the plan that we're going to take, because I think, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a uh, one surgeon who I've always respected a lot always said that with the plan comes hope. And I think when 
you know, people come in, if they have a, a plan in place, then, you know, they know that things will start happening as far as the care. So hopefully that answers that question. No, it, it definitely does. And, and I appreciate, I always appreciate doctors who are willing to be there and, and listen to the questions and, and go through everything. So that's, that's great that you are one of those. <laughs> Um, talking about hope, um, the next question is: There's a feeling of hopelessness around systemic race, race. Excuse me, around systemic racism. What advice do you have for people to keep fighting? Who, um, you know, I, I think for me, um, advice to keep fighting. I mean, I, I think for me, I, I just, I kind of have this vision of just trying to, to, uh, it's kind of, for me, I think it's just one patient at a time. And, and sometimes, you know, I guess trying to do my own little part uh, to not little part, I mean, sometimes it could be, you know, when it comes to treating things like this, uh, a big part, but, uh, um, you know, I really try to, I think I look even beyond the diagnosis and trying to, to understand some of those social determinants of health and, um, you know, being, I think, uh, uh, you know, a citizen, a community member that really tries to strive to see, you know, equity in all access uh, in all aspects of life, um, you know, and I guess I would encourage people to, um, you know, to work for the betterment of their community and try to, to serve their serve their neighbors and serve, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, yeah, like and, and, and try to work towards a better equitable um, society. I mean, I think that kind of starts on, um, you know, the local level uh, here in our, in the city of Chicago and, and kind of going beyond that. And so um, that's, a, it's a great question, which I, I, I wish I had a better answer for. Um, I but I can say that being, good. yeah, but I think being surrounded by people, you know, I think for me, you know, where I'm, I'm lucky to be, you know, in a place like here where I have a lot, we have a lot of people that encourage each other um, in this fight to try to, to combat structural racism. And I think a willingness to be open-minded about the things that we're getting wrong too, and that I'm getting wrong and that, uh, when it comes to, uh, to, to fighting that. And, and, and so I think having open ears and, and listening to each other, I think is really, you know, really important. So, because, because I, um, I mean, like, you know, as I think I said, uh, you know, coming from from Canada, I think it was very naive to to a lot of the issues of, of, of structural racism and, and really wanting to, to do what I can to combat that um, as a healthcare provider and as a, as a community member. Sure. So what's what's being done within the medical community to address it? For, so, for example, are there campaigns that are targeting the communities? Are there is there extra education at conferences? You know that that the doctors go to at what 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 all is happening right now? Yeah, no, great question. And and uh, you know a lot of us are 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 trying to to refine our you know our kind of approach at the bedside to try to to practice more culturally culturally competent care. Um, you know, and that certainly comes through through seminars, uh, through learning from each other, uh, through being receptive to feedback, and how we can do that, and trying to be aware and accepting of uh, of, of everybody, of all people, uh, regardless of race, gender, um, orientation, etc. Um, and and so, yeah, I, I, you know, and so I think on a, on a systems level, and and a lot of this is really burdened on the individual. Uh, centers and hospitals to try to make sure they're doing that, um, and, and I think that there are, are there are certainly institutions that are doing it 
better than others. And I think there's always an opportunity to learn from, from each other. Um, you know, whether that, and, and, and I'll also even say that even at, uh, from the society level, certainly a lot of societies that I, uh, uh, am a part of, uh, recently has, has initiated, um, you know, um, um, committees, uh, that are focused on equity, whether that's equity within the profession or equity within, um, uh, the community as a whole and, and with our patients. And so, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's a complex problem that I think definitely takes all of us, um, uh, to, to, to fix. And I think and that's where, you know, that's why I think I've said it, I don't know, I've said it a few times tonight that, you know, a, a lot of those social, you know, disparities and outcomes for pancreas cancer really kind of goes beyond just the diagnosis and really relates to social determinants uh, of care as a whole, or sorry, social determinants of health as a whole. For sure. And, and I should catch all of this in saying that I don't expect that you're going to have all the answers here. Um, it's more that, you know, you're in it and to, to get the pulse of your thoughts combined with what's happening yeah. within the industry as well. I mean, obviously it's a, it's a bigger problem. How about, um, you know, minorities not getting into clinical trials? Are there ways that we as an organization or that um, individuals can um, work to increase that opportunity? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I think um, some of that, I think has to do with some of that, that trust issue, which, which um, you know, you really cannot blame patients for, um, given their, the inequitable, you know, uh, healthcare outcomes that they've had. And some of that has to do with, with being at centers that, that offer clinical trials and even uh, having clinical trials available. Um, you know, the, a lot of the data that, that I shared really has to do with really all clinical trials. Um, and, uh, uh, and that it does tend to transcend and in, in, in involve, like, and have, and be, again, multifactorial in, in patients who have better insurance, uh, et cetera. But, um, yeah, I, I think that the onus is also on us to, to make sure that we are offering that to, uh, to patients when, when available. Um, and so, uh, um, yeah, I think it definitely, you know, that that definitely falls on us as a medical community and 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 trying to, I think, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, make make patients aware and just the importance of that for, you know, for advancing things like pancreas cancer as a, as a whole. So. Okay, um, so we have three more questions. Um, and for those who need to cut out, I want to just reassure you, we are recording tonight's session, so you will be able to come back and um, finish it out. So the next question is, I understand about the access to insurance and, and doctors piece, um, but when they're at the doctors, why are they not being offered options and surgery? Yeah, um, that's, that's a great question. And, I, and um, frankly, I think that uh, the data um, you know, that I shared, I, I kind of found pretty shocking as well once we were really you know, doing um, those, those, those reviews. And so, um, you know, I, I, I wish I had a great answer for that uh, in terms of why, you know, those, they weren't even being offered, being offered surgery. Um, uh, because I, you know, for, for myself, I can't imagine not offering um, surgery to, to, uh, to a patient who I thought needed it. Um, and so, um, yeah, um, I really don't have a great answer for you for for you as far as as why um, certain patient groups will not be off 
deferred surgery. And that's just unfortunately the, the data, which is it's very illuminating and it's shocking and it's it's uh, and it makes you angry. Um, you know, I think it makes all of us angry. I think when we when we see, um, you know, when we see results like that. Yeah, absolutely. So what what would you what are your recommendations on what we as an organization or individuals who are not in the, the black community to, to be able to do and, and help? Um, what, yeah. I know you're oh, looking yeah. I, I, I mean, for answers and we're looking to you. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and I think that I think it goes back to I think the you know, one one thing, and I and I think Aaron, you stress stress this with what the Rawl Foundation is trying to do is, is directing patients to to centers of excellence uh, and and high volume centers. I think that's a huge component, and so, um, you know, and 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 that's why I kind of said what I did about trying to to get care at a high volume center, um, where if if you end up going to a low volume center, maybe that's that's a potential reason that that some of these patients are not um, um, being offered surgery, whereas if they go to a high volume center to see a surgeon like myself, who does a lot of these operations, um, you know, we try to, to do what we can and find, you know, uh, to, to, to get these patients to to the OR. And so regardless of, of you know, ability to pay, etc. We, we try to do what we can to help anybody that comes through our door. So I, I think that that's a, a really important one is having that awareness of, of wanting to seek out care at high volume centers. Um, that's probably one of the biggest things that we can kind of advocate for. Um, and, uh, um, you know, understandably, there's probably, you know, there's going to be a, um, you know, a lack of things like navigators that really kind of help, uh, um, you know, steer people towards um, um, high volume centers. And I think that's where, where, uh, um, foundations like the Rolf foundation would be so important, uh, with, with trying to get, um, to get, uh, to get, to get patients to high volume centers that will get, uh, to get them the, you know, the care that they need. Sure. Okay. And we always like to end our sessions with what are the top three takeaways that you want our, um, audience to, to leave with tonight? Yeah. So, you know, I think number one, one, um, you know, pancreatic cancer is, it's an aggressive cancer. Uh, it's a systemic disease. Um, you know, it, it's so, and it's one that um, requires multimodality treatment. That's really important uh, to, to adequately treating patients um, that, uh, um, you know, when patients or when possible doing, you know, surgery, chemotherapy, plus or minus radiation, it's really important to try to maximize the chance of people surviving and getting that care at a high volume center really kind of helps ensure that, you know, you're getting the, you know, standard best care possible. Um, number two, um, there are clear disparities in the incidence of pancreas cancer. Black patients, again, are, are the most, most likely uh, they, they, they are disproportionately affected the most by pancreas cancer, uh, as well as death rate, and they have the lowest access to multi-modality care and high volume centers. Um, and, uh, and number three, um, I think that the reasons for that are multifactorial. Uh, a lot of that is embedded in systemic racism. Um, it's going to, they're difficult solutions they're, they're difficult problems to fix with not easy solutions uh, I think it's going to take all of us to think of ways that we could try to do that and uh, you know um, you know I'm certainly committed to to doing that as well as many many other people who, who do these types of surgeries and treat this type of illness so um, and we really you know want to be open-minded to, to listen to 
you know, the community and, and how we can, you know, make sure that we can uh, provide access to that kind of care to, uh, to everybody, regardless of, uh, um, you know, ability to pay, socioeconomic status, insurance type, race, what have you. Well, I'm glad you're out there. Um, I could talk with you about this all day and night and then some. Uh, but I truly appreciate you sharing all this tonight with us and um, the work that you're doing to help so many people and, and to improve lives. So um, thank you so much um, for your, this candid discussion on such an important topic. No, thanks. Thanks very much, Aaron. It was great speaking with you. And uh, thanks again to everybody who, uh, who, who tuned in. And uh, um, yeah, no, I had a great, great time. Thanks again for having me. And I look forward to uh, to keeping up and and seeing what what you have coming ahead. Absolutely, happy right, to. Thank you, and thank you to Savina and the Cancer Wellness Center for partnering with, with us tonight. Thank you to everybody who joined us on the call, um, asking such meaningful and and thoughtful questions. If you are catching this on the replay, go ahead and put replay in the comments and ask your questions so that we can make sure that we get those over to Dr. Dixon and and get back to you. We'll be sharing details about next month's Wellness Wednesday session soon, uh, so you can keep an eye out on our social channels. And we're always looking for ideas for future editions. So if you have a topic or speaker, um, please email them to us at info at ralphfoundation.org. In the meantime, um, you can also listen to past Wellness Wednesday episodes on a podcast. Simply search for Wellness Wednesday or Ralph Foundation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of everyone at Ralph Pancreatic Cancer Foundation and the Cancer Wellness Center, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Until next time, I hope you stay healthy and take good care. Good night. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And feel free to leave a five-star review because it helps people find us. Ralph Pancreatic Cancer Foundation provides personal support to those affected by pancreatic cancer through tailored resources, connections and education, and funding for early detection research. To learn more about Ralph Foundation, please visit us at ralphfoundation.org or call 773-989-1108. We'll see you next time.